Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of torture and gore, as well as discussions of abuse, sexualized violence, childhood sexual trauma, and incest. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Brown concrete teeth jutted up against the cloudless Los Angeles sky. Dolores would have stopped to photograph the house, even if she hadn't been studying to be an architect herself. She grabbed her 35-millimeter camera from the back seat of her coupe. She stood in front of the house, taking shot after shot of the tomb-like facade with its earthen stone mouth and peculiar angles. She lifted herself up the small concrete half wall that stood in front of the entrance, searching for the perfect angle to capture the strange building and its disquieting, aggressive front entrance. A voice cut through the distance, telling her that the view was better from across the street. She nearly lost her balance. Dolores steadied herself as best she could and turned to look at the man. When she saw who it was, she nearly dropped her camera. Edmund Teske himself stood before her. He was a brilliant photographer, experimental, a pioneer. Dolores was a little starstruck and went to thank him, but Teske took several steps back. Dolores asked if he had photographed the house before. He had. She wanted to know what he thought of it. He studied her for a long moment, his shoulders tense. Edmund told her that it was an interesting facade, but the house itself was a den of evil. She laughed. His face remained stony. He told her that a pretty girl like herself should never accept an invitation to the house. The men who played here weren't good people. They liked to hunt women. They liked to hurt people. Sometimes they even murdered them. Dolores inched away slowly. Her foot caught on the concrete wall and she started to fall. Another man was there to catch her in an instant. He asked her to come inside. Teske was gone. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Souton House, one of Los Angeles' most striking historic homes, which just happens to be the decades-long residence of the man many LAPD officers believed killed the Black Dahlia and discover why, to this day, it's haunted.
In 1976, architect Stephen Lamb was taking pictures of the facade of Souton House on Franklin Avenue. The Mayan Revival residence was built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright for his friend John Souton. Its intricately patterned stonework made it like nothing else in Los Angeles, and Lamb was hardly the first photographer to take interest. In fact, while Lamb took his pictures, he was approached by experimental photographer Edmund Teske. According to Lamb, Teske asked him what he thought of the building, only to interrupt him, saying, It's an evil place. Artists, philosophers, accountants, and politicians. We all played and paid there. Women were tortured for sport there. Murders happened there. It's an evil place. Teske would know. He was a close friend of one of the former owners of the house, Dr. George Hodell, a respected doctor specializing in the treatment of venereal disease. Hodell was close with surrealist and Dadaist artist Man Ray and frequently hosted him and his inner circle at the Souton House, throwing lavish and debauched parties. But these weren't your usual Hollywood soirees. If Teske's accusations are accurate, Hodel's A-list salons frequently took a dark and dangerous turn, including non-consensual sadomasochism and other forms of sexual abuse. And Teske wasn't the only one who suggested that something horrible was going on inside Souten House. George Hill Hodell lived with his second legal wife, Dorero, and their three children, as well as his ex-wife, Dorothy, and their daughter, Tamar. A notorious womanizer, Hodell had many girlfriends while cohabitating with his current and ex-wives on and off throughout the late 1940s. In October 1949, 14-year-old Tamar Hodell accused her father of sexual assault and abuse, dating back to when she was around nine years old. Tamar told the court that her father wanted her to wander around the house naked during his parties. According to her testimony, Man Ray took nude pictures of her when she was 11. Most horrifying of all, she reported that George Hodell forced her to perform oral sex on him as training for further abuse. Hodell used his extensive connections to discredit his daughter, casting her as a promiscuous pathological liar. Hodell was acquitted, but the story does not end there. Soon afterward, Tamar overheard information from the LAPD that made her father even more frightening. Some of the detectives believed George Hodell was responsible for one of the most shocking unsolved crimes in history. On January 15, 1947, the corpse of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found near the sidewalk on a vacant lot in South Los Angeles. The initial witness, Betty Bersinger, was walking with her three-year-old daughter when she saw what she thought was a discarded and disassembled store mannequin. Elizabeth had been drained entirely of blood and cut cleanly in half at her waist. Her cheeks had been slashed to give her a Glasgow smile. Originally a gang tactic from the United Kingdom, this form of facial mutilation involves slicing from the corners of the lips to the ears to widen the victim's mouth into a bloody grin. 
She was posed with her hands over her head, her elbows at right angles, and her legs spread to expose the abuse she had endured both before and after death. Local and national newspapers sensationalized Elizabeth's murder, framing her as an aspiring actress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard, only to be slain by a sex fiend. They called her the Black Dahlia, after the Blue Dahlia, a film noir released the year before. Los Angeles District Attorney Lieutenant Frank Jemison made a list of 22 suspects. The list included Dr. George Hodell, who was reported to have been seeing Elizabeth Short at the time of her death. But no one was charged, and time dragged on. The lurid case became part of Los Angeles lore, as dark and taboo as any of George Hodell's illicit parties. But the revelry never stopped at the Souden House, and it always keeps its secrets. The temple called to Walter. Its very presence was impossible. An ancient Mayan tomb on Franklin Avenue. No visible means of entrance, aside from the maw-like front door. His fingers itched each time he went past. He had enough money, much like the occupants of Souden House, and gentlemen burglars were a dying breed after the Second World War, but he had always been stubborn. He needed a constant challenge to scratch an itch that pulled him into dark and remote spaces. And this, well, this felt like a radio serial. Walter was going tomb raiding. He had no means of casing the house, but he also wasn't looking for anything in particular. He merely hoped to find something interesting, some trinket to remember this almost otherworldly place. He wasn't able to find a convenient point of entry until coming around to the back alley. A window to a majestic gold bedroom stood open, curtains wafting beyond the casement, inviting him in. He answered their call with enthusiasm. Walter took no notice of the sleeping couple within, aside from making sure they were indeed asleep. He waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness taking in the glittering metallic sheen on nearly every surface. Whoever lived here had a very particular kind of taste. He wasn't sure if it was good taste, but it was taste. There were a series of small metal sculptures and curios on a side table, some surrealist nonsense. Walter always preferred art he could identify. The other side of the room offered more intriguing pieces, the helmet of some forgotten warrior was mounted on a wire frame. A small fertility idol puckered its lips at him, hands left open to reveal its ample body. But the most intriguing artifact was the tablet. It was irregular in size, intricately carved from smooth, dark stone. Chinese characters, wide-eyed faces, and blooming flowers snaked across the surface. About the size of a human head, it was the perfect shape to offer up a sacrifice to the ancestors, to catch the blood in small, swirling channels. Walter had to have it. He plucked it from its mount and prepared to make a getaway when he realized that a sound was missing. The snoring was lighter than before. One of the sleepers was waking up, 
and they were between him and the window. Walter dashed to the nearest door, finding himself in a shadowy bathroom. The tub was massive, the centerpiece of the room. There was nowhere to hide. Walter allowed himself a small sigh. He always knew his obsession would be his undoing. He never doubted it. Still, he couldn't resist the chance for one more great escape. He ducked his small frame down into the tub, pulling his knees in and hugging the tablet to his chest so they were all beneath the lip of the massive porcelain bowl. If the sleeper did enter, perhaps they would be so tired they didn't notice. Walter could have sworn he heard water running. It was a big house. Perhaps someone else had woken up. A heaviness settled in his chest. Something invisible pressing down. He tried to control his breathing as he looked up at the carved ceiling, its earthen shapes so like a tomb. He hadn't heard anyone come in, but he could still feel a presence looming over him, closer with each passing moment. And yet it seemed not to be searching. He could hear rustling, dragging, like someone was simply carrying out a task, an important one, but one that had nothing to do with him. It was at that moment that the water turned on. Or at least he thought it had. Nothing splashed from the spigot, and the handles had not turned. But the plinking of running water hitting the porcelain seemed to be coming from right in front of him. Suddenly, a figure appeared overhead, looking over the lip of the tub. It had a pale white face, long features, a distinctive mustache. His face was hard to read, clinical, tired but content. Still intent on its phantom work, it seemed not to realize he was there. Walter could only lie still, frozen, the cold porcelain chilling the hairs at the back of his neck as he waited for some sign that he could escape, some sign the cold doctor would move on. Seconds became minutes, became what might have been hours. Still, Walter waited, patient, staring up at the strange ceiling. When he lowered his gaze, he wished he hadn't. A woman was sitting opposite him in the tub. Dark hair, dark eyebrows, dark lipstick. Her face was carved into a permanent smile, but her eyes were wide, stuck in a silent scream. She was almost luminescent in her paleness. He could tell she was naked and did not want to look. But his eyes drifted, desperately hoping to escape her gruesome smile. There was nothing below her waist. She was half a person, less than half a person, in that floating monster's eyes. Tears fell down Walter's cheeks. He wanted to help, but he knew he couldn't. He may very well have been going mad. He knew he was risking discovery, but he didn't care. He had to leave now. Walter burst from the tub and ran for the window, leaping out and into the alley, clutching the tablet out of instinct more than desire. When he dared look back, the mustached face was looking back at him, puzzled 
smiling. He merely nodded to Walter, man to man, before shutting the window and closing the curtains. And that was how one of the greatest cat burglars the world would ever know decided it was time to retire. On November 19, 1947, the Los Angeles Times reported that a 1,400-year-old Chinese sacrificial tablet, valued by the owner at $25,000, was stolen from the home of Dr. George H. Hodell, 5121 Franklin Avenue. The burglar entered the home through a rear bedroom window. Dr. Hodell described the antique as 11 by 6 by 3 and a half inches, bearing about 50 Chinese characters carved on a dark gray stone. As far as we know, the tablet was never recovered. The artifact was a purchase by Hodell himself, who filled the Soden house with international antiquities. This was well in keeping with the home's original construction. Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., who went by Lloyd Wright, drew on his experience as a silent film-era Hollywood set designer to build a fortress-like residence inspired by the ancient Mayan city of Palenque. The home centers around an atrium, the only outdoor space on the property. All of the major rooms surrounded the open-air garden, with dark passageways and secret rooms hidden deeper in the house. Steve Hodell, a retired LAPD homicide detective, and George Hodell's son, believes that his father bisected and drained Elizabeth Short's body in the master bathroom before dragging the corpse through the atrium and out to the garage, all of which would have been hidden from the street. To this day, witnesses report a feeling of heaviness in the bathroom, and footsteps and voices are often heard in the adjacent hallway as if two people are moving a body. Up next, damning evidence is collected from the Souten house. But someone, or something, doesn't want this story told. Now back to the story. When they found it, bisected on the street, Elizabeth Short's body had been washed. There was no concept of DNA evidence in 1947, so the LAPD was forced to work with what they had, canvassing the neighborhood around the dump site and going through the young woman's address book. They were less than a month into this process when the naked body of Jean French was found in another vacant lot. An obscene message had been written on her torso in crimson lipstick, insulting someone referred to only as BD though it's since suggested that the message was misread and it was actually directed at the LAPD. The missive was finished with three letters, T-E-X. The initials meant the case was immediately linked to the Black Dahlia, despite the significant differences in killing method and victimology. Elizabeth Short was 22 and posed like a work of art. Jean French was 44 and had been beaten to a bloody pulp. The pressure was on for the LAPD to catch what the newspapers were beginning to call the werewolf. But they had little to go on. Two years passed with little headway. But in October 1949, investigator in Tamar Hodell's rape trial told her that her father was also being investigated for the murder of Elizabeth Short. 
A trial witness claimed that Tamar had come to them distraught. She apparently believed that her father had killed the Black Dahlia and planned to kill her whole family, including her mother, stepmother, and brothers. George Hodel's attorneys argued that such wild accusations against a respected Los Angeles medical professional proved that the 14-year-old was a pathological liar. But someone in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office believed they were onto something. The DA decided to bug Soudenhaus. And in February 1950, the police picked up something that explains every bump and shadow in the Soudenhaus basement. When Bob joined the police force, he was hoping it would be more like the movies. He'd race around the city chasing bad guys, making arrests left and right. He didn't learn until later that most of his job would consist of handling the things that no one else wanted to do. Traffic ticket duty, filing paperwork. But his boss had promoted him to surveillance, and he figured now would be his chance to do something meaningful. Unfortunately, the man he'd been tasked with surveilling wasn't terribly interesting. George Hodel was a bit of a drip. His conversations were boring. His house guests spent all their time working on art. Days turned into weeks, and Bob hadn't heard anything useful. It had been over three years since Elizabeth Short was found, and he was beginning to suspect that the trail had gone cold. He was snacking on a pastrami and rye, drawing doodles instead of notes, when a German voice came through the tinny speakers. Bob sat up a little straighter. He didn't recognize the man speaking. It wasn't on his list of Hodel's usual friends and acquaintances. The conversation was so general that Bob started to tune out again, drawing small sharks on a scrap of paper. Suddenly, his hand stopped mid-sketch. Had they said what he thought they said? He swore he'd heard the word kill, quickly followed by Black Dahlia. He gripped the pencil so tightly that the tip snapped off of the paper. He grabbed a new one and started writing as fast as he could. Hodel was being smart. He was always smart, using hypotheticals rather than admitting anything. He was saying that if he had killed the Black Dahlia, there wasn't anything anyone could do about it since his secretary was dead. Bob glanced at his notes. Hodel did have a secretary, Ruth Spalding, who died in 1945 of an apparent drug overdose. But that was years before Elizabeth's death. Maybe he was hinting at another one, some girl that he'd left in another vacant lot, one that no one had discovered yet. He made a note to look into Ruth's death later. There might be something there. Bob wasn't a detective, but he was hoping to get there soon. Cracking this case wide open would definitely be a step in the right direction. The conversation between Hodel and the German shifted topics. There were no more mentions of Elizabeth Short or any other murders that Hodel was not taking credit for. The dialogue droned into the usual monotony Bob had come to expect. Bob's eyes glazed over. He had worked over 12 hours today, and he still had a few more to go before he could clock out. He hoped his adrenaline from the brief hypothetical conversation would carry him through, but his eyes started to drift closed. (laughs) 
Bob's eyes snapped open. He could hear footsteps descending. They were heading into the basement. Bob strained his ears to pick up any other clues. There was nothing but the pounding of footsteps against the floor. He fought off sleep as best he could, but the silence was just too deep, too empty. His head started to lull. A woman's scream split his eardrums. Bob fell out of his chair, his headphones sliding off his head. His hands shook as he put them back on, pulling his chair back to him. Bob didn't breathe. His nerves buzzed as he waited for something else to happen. A single scream could be for any number of reasons. Bob may have been overhearing one of Hodel's strange sadist parties. He had no way of knowing what was real and what was not. Two minutes later, another scream cut through the silence. Bob noted both screams down. Someone else was yelling for them to call the hospital. As early as a few hours ago, Bob was pretty sure that Hodel was just some rich deviant, a monster who hurt his own kid, but not a murderer. His blood ran cold as he heard the panic in someone else's voice and something about another secretary. He was supposed to sit here and keep taking notes. They needed time to build a case against the doctor, and the tape's admissibility was questionable at best. But he knew that there would be no call to the hospital tonight. An innocent woman could pay the price for his inaction. So he left his post. The tapes would keep turning. He used the siren on the car to cut across town as fast as he could. With Elizabeth Short, there was a decent window between when she was killed and when she ended up in the lot, but he needed every advantage he could get. Time was a big one. He pulled up to the house and pocketed his car keys, sneaking up the front steps. He hid in the alcove by the door, listening for any movement. When he heard nothing, he tried the latch. It gave way, and he slipped inside. Bob had never been in the Southern house before. It felt like a tomb. The silence had a weight to it, pressing down on his body the way the blocky, Mayan-inspired ceiling pressed in from above. The basement stairs glowed with a faded yellow light. He took each step slowly, hugging the walls. Hodel and the German were down below, still talking, almost silhouettes, their backs to him. There was a woman in the room as well, but she looked more like a decoration than a person. Her eyes were filled with fear, but the rest of her body had been arranged as a display piece, her hands high above her head, legs spread wide. She bore a strange resemblance to Elizabeth Short, but this woman was still alive still whole for now. Bob lowered himself to the ground and tried to crawl to her. The two men were distracted by their own conversation, not sparing her even the slightest glance. Blood pooled on the floor, forcing him to move slowly as the warm liquid coated his shirt and hands. The woman glanced down. He met her eyes. An eternity of understanding passed between them. He would help her in whatever way he could. Bob dealt with the restraints along her legs first. Sweat dripped down his back, 
Carefully, silently, he slid the rope away from her ankles. She was whimpering softly, the sounds of her distress washing his senses with protective rage and fear. He'd reached her knee when he felt something pulling him backward. A second later, the world went dark. Bob woke up in front of the Hollywood precinct. He was wearing fresh clothes, but there was blood under his fingernails. It was real. He'd been there. He'd caught Hodel in the act. And this time, there was more than just a witness's testimony. There were the tapes as well. They had enough evidence to pin him good this time. He rushed for his lieutenant's office, hoping there was some way to find the other woman before she became the second Dahlia. But his notes weren't there. The other man's voice was cold when he told Bob to let things be. There wasn't anything important on those papers. They ended up where they needed to go. He wanted to protest, but his superior's body language told him there was no hope. He was too like the German, too like Hodel. The lieutenant looked at him with a kind, if condescending, smile. Bob had a long few days on the job, he said. He needed some rest. Girls went missing all the time. Actresses, they get distracted, leave, and come back in a month or two when their new boyfriend's money runs out. The lieutenant handed him another file. It had a different transcript inside it, and a check. Bob paused. He'd been lucky to escape with his life, he knew that. They were offering him a chance to get ahead. He swallowed away his fears and took the money, more than willing to trade his conscience for a better life, a better position. But every time he went below ground, from the evidence vault to his comfortable bungalow's basement to the Pacific Electric subway, a cold followed him, a whimpering in his ear that disappeared as soon as he turned his head. And sometimes, as he boarded one of the famous Pacific Electric red cars, he saw her, the second Dahlia. At first, he deluded himself into thinking she was just reaching up to hold the metal bar overhead, steadying herself against the clacking train, until his eyes traveled down her body, noticing the right-angled arms, the splayed legs, and her midsection slowly being sawed in half. At some point in 1949, Tamar Hodel fled Soden House to hide with her friends after reportedly learning that her father had killed his secretary, Ruth Spalding, by failing to report her drug overdose. According to Tamar, her stepmother saw Ruth passed out and asked her husband how to help. Hodel reassured her that everything was all right and told her to go about her business. Ruth Spalding never woke up. The LAPD searched for the 14-year-old Tamar, eventually bringing her home to Soudin House against her will. When she begged them for help, she says they told her they knew all about her father. It appears they just didn't care. Steve Hodel believes that his father murdered as many as nine women in Soudin House's basement. 
Los Angeles Times reporter Steve Lopez was dubious of these claims until he himself tracked down evidence in the DA's office that had been stored separately from the Black Dahlia case. The investigator in charge of the case at the time claimed that the surveillance transcripts on Souden House exonerated George Hodel, but the documents tell a different story. The conversations and screams described in the previous story are based on those transcripts. Hodel reportedly said, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Steve Hodell believes that Ruth Spaulding became aware of his father's tendency to extort his patients and was killed when she tried to gather evidence against him. Several witnesses, including long occupants of the house, have reported seeing ghostly apparitions on the lower level. These would be disturbing enough if they weren't split in half, just like Elizabeth Short. Coming up, we delve into the potential motives for the murder of Elizabeth Short, inspired by the sadistic and darkly imaginative artists Hodel partied with. Now, back to the story. Los Angeles prosecutor Steve Kay has said he would file two counts of murder against George Hodel if he were still alive. The first for Elizabeth Short and the second for Jean French. But the matter of fact is, Hodel escaped Los Angeles. He put Souden House up for sale around 1950 under the heading For Sale Shangri-La in Los Angeles, listing it at $44,500, worth about $475,000 in 2019. His son Steve believes that Hodel fled Hawaii and then the Philippines. In 1967, the corpse of Lucilla Lalu was found in a vacant lot half a mile from George Hodel's Manila residence. She had been bisected and posed just like the Black Dahlia. Even after Hodel's death in 1999, Elizabeth Short, Jean French, and Lucilla Lalu's pain lived on in arresting images. Not only disturbing crime scene photos, but also in the work of Hodel's close friend, Man Ray, and his fellow surrealists. The imagery of Man Ray's works, particularly The Minotaur and the Lovers, evoke both the pose and mutilation of Elizabeth Short. Steve Hodel and others believed Man Ray's work influenced George Hodel, and vice versa. The Lovers and its other variations center on an almost cartoonishly stretched pair of women's lips, the Minotaur is a black-and-white photo of a naked woman's torso. She's headless, her neck fading away into inky darkness. The shadows beneath her breasts and ribcage form a bovine face, and her rail-thin arms are bent at right angles, her hands fading into darkness as well to form the Minotaur's horns. George Hodel desperately wanted to be an artist before going to medical school and he curried favor with nearly every surrealist who crossed his path, frequently making them and their work the cause célèbre for their sinister parties. And for some visitors to the Souten House, the spirit of those dark parties lives on.
For her first Halloween in Los Angeles, Haley had made a terrible decision born out of desperation. She'd shown up on a blind date, dressed as the Black Dahlia. Her date, Tom, had taken it in stride. He told her she did bear a striking resemblance to Elizabeth Short, but maybe she should wash off the dotted lines bisecting her stomach. Three years later, Tom planned a special surprise for their anniversary. They would be attending an exhibit at the Souden House. Not just any exhibit. This one examined art that may have been inspired by the Black Dahlia's death. The press brochure described the potential conspiracy surrounding the torture and abuse of women and children in that same house. Haley had felt some hesitation at spending time in the house where Elizabeth Short had possibly been murdered. But it was her thing with Tom, a shared point of interest in Los Angeles history. She tried to think of it as celebrating the woman instead. Elizabeth Short had thirsted for fame, but wound up with notoriety. She dressed for the occasion, wearing a 40s-inspired black dress and victory curls in her hair. It was more polished than the picture of Elizabeth Short that she used for reference, but she wasn't trying to be a dead ringer this time. It was just an homage. They passed through a gate covered in turquoise metal, cut like glittering fish scales that seemed to undulate in the glow of the outdoor lights. All of the noises of Los Feliz faded behind them as they stepped into the house, turning up a staircase. The farther she got from the entrance, the more tense Haley became. She felt as though she was leaving the world behind, rather than touring a historic home. The plain walls and concrete felt like a tomb. Tom guided her up the last staircase, and Haley got her first look at the inside of the illustrious Souden House. It looked more like a film set than a real home, an impossibly beautiful but frightening structure that called and repelled you all at once. A house in the style of Hitchcock with artful glass windows that looked like they were cut with bars from a jail cell. Large slabs of concrete sculpted into some vaguely ancient Mayan shape. Swirling snake designs traveled across the concrete, hoping that someone would be brave enough to get close. Haley tried to make some crack to Tom about how gaudy the design looked, but he was gone. She spied him a few feet ahead of her, standing by the pool with a glass of wine in hand, her dashing leading man. She wandered closer to the tiled windows, staring at a canvas across from it, orange on one side, blue on the other, magnified vertebrae in dark red with spindly tan scratches in lieu of ribs. There was a blood spatter near the top of one side, something that looked like human lips near the bottom. A deconstructed body, or something suggesting it, organs where they shouldn't be, an overwhelming wash of color, the hint of violence in both the color palette and the harsh outlines of bone and blood. The death of Mona Lita, the card read. She shifted her gaze, turning to walk down to the next area. The floor beneath her, stone slate, shifted to concrete squares with rounded edges. A hand brushed against her back. Haley turned. 
Nothing greeted her but the wind from the doors that led out to the atrium. The slate floor was beneath her again. She told herself it was just the atmosphere messing with her head, like being in a mausoleum. She approached the next piece of art. It looked like a very strange mosaic, a nude woman lying on the bottom, her arms bent over her head like the Black Dahlia. In the top corner was a man in a suit with a medical bag in his hands. Next to him were several large surgical tools. Haley's staring was interrupted when someone bumped into her. He had hard eyes, but a friendly smile underneath a mustache that looked more at home in the 50s than today. He introduced himself as the host. He was going by George tonight to keep with the theme. She thanked him for curating the experience. George said he was happy to bring this exhibit to a chosen few who might understand his passion. He gestured to the piece in front of them and asked her opinion. She shrugged her shoulders and smiled nervously. She was no art expert. He told her that the feelings that inspired in her were more important than any highbrow criticism. Well, that was easier to answer. Haley told him she felt afraid, but excited. He smiled. It brought out similar feelings in him. She glanced around. The pool that had cut across the atrium earlier was gone. Tall trees and grass had replaced the stone and water. George grabbed her hand, telling her she mustn't get lost. She didn't like how firm his grip was, but she allowed it for now. He walked her across the atrium lawn to the next exhibit area. She couldn't entirely swallow her scream as she took in the art in front of her. A faceless naked woman. Dead. She was tangled in brambles amongst the wilderness. The perspective was from a person watching through a hole in a stone wall. If the others had unsettled her, this one disturbed her. Like the subject of the painting, she suddenly felt like an interloper. The death of the Black Dahlia was a dark fairy tale in her head, but this art piece felt much more real to her. She could suddenly see Elizabeth Short in stark clarity, vulnerable and discarded in a vacant lot. A young woman torn apart and reassembled. An arm slid around her shoulders. Haley jumped. Tom wanted to know what was wrong with her. She opened her mouth, but she couldn't get a word to come out. George had disappeared into the crowd. She told Tom it was nothing. She was just more tired than she thought. He nodded his head, then turned to the art. He leaned into Haley, saying the piece was kind of hot. Her stomach turned. She turned away from the painting and headed back towards the comforting green of the courtyard. Fresh air filled her lungs. Across the way stood the most impressive Elizabeth Short impersonator Haley had ever seen. She looked beautiful in a long dress. Haley smiled and waved. The attention to detail truly had been exquisite here. Elizabeth grimaced, holding her torso. Haley screamed for help as the top of Elizabeth's body left the bottom half. Her torso and head floated in midair, trailing intestines as her legs fell to the ground. Haley didn't realize she was running until she was halfway across the courtyard. She needed to reach Elizabeth, help sew her back together somehow. 
She was almost there, and then she was falling into water. The pool had materialized underneath her. Her head hit the concrete bottom. A faint pink cloud drifted away towards the surface. Elizabeth's head floated just above her own. Her eyes were hard and accusing as she watched Haley at the bottom of the pool. She wanted to swim upwards, but her arms were pinned over her head uncomfortably. Right angles. As hard as she tried, she couldn't get them to move. Haley tried to kick her legs, but they froze in place, splayed wide. She tried to scream, but her sounds of terror were swallowed by the water. Elizabeth's cold face peered down at her as air became harder and harder to take in. It was the last thing she saw before the entire world went dark around her. Man Ray and his contemporaries, including William Copley, Marcel Duchamp, and Hodel's other close friend, Fred Sexton, continued to explore the abuse and mutilation of women in their art after Elizabeth Short's murder. Copley's It Is Midnight Dr. Blank depicts a suited man with a physician's bag and a series of bone saws above a nude woman. Sexton's 1955 painting, The Death of Mona Lita, is a mix of the abstract and the surreal. In the artwork, elements of the woman's body, including her unnaturally large lips, have been moved to the groin area. In a chilling parallel, Elizabeth Short's autopsy revealed that flesh had been cut from her thigh and inserted into her vagina. A similar artistic depiction of a brutalized woman is shown in Duchamp's Given. One, the waterfall. Two, the illuminating gas. It is a kind of tableau shadow box, visible only through two peepholes. Gazing into the box reveals a nude woman in the foreground, legs spread, head obscured. She is unearthly pale and surrounded by weeds, almost like a vacant lot. When LAPD detectives questioned George Hodel as part of their investigation into the rape of his daughter, he told them that his parties, which centered in the outdoor space, were about delving into the mystery of love in the universe. And Souten House certainly holds on to its mysteries, even today. Another one of Hodel's frequent party guests was the surrealist writer Henry Miller. In his 1940 text, The World of Sex, he wrote, there is nothing in itself that is wrong or evil, not even murder. It is the fear of doing wrong, the fear of committing murder, the fear of acting or expressing oneself, which is wrong. Later in that same book, Miller describes seeing a man dressing a mannequin in a store window. The following quote has been edited to eliminate expletives. He's going to take the live sexual mannequin and make her seductive to the passerby by putting clothes around her and making her look like the people in the street. He makes the sexual thing dead, just as the undertaker is ticking up a corpse makes death look inviting. Dead or alive, whatever is bare, stark, nude, frightens them. A wax nude woman in a show window can terrify them, even more than a live one, so it seems. When Elizabeth Short was found, she'd been turned into an object, like a discarded store mannequin, 
divided at the waist for easy transport and aesthetic pleasure. If Steve Hodel is correct, that transformation began at Sauden House. It would explain the strange bisected apparitions and mysterious cries for help that echo in the hallways. It would explain the ghostly footsteps and ominous shadows in their frequently locked basement, at least as well as such horror and such cruelty can be explained. So if you head to Souden House for a charity event or film shoot, keep your ears and your eyes open. We owe it to Elizabeth and Jean and Ruth and Tamar. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Souden House, amongst the many sources we used, we found the investigative work of Steve Hodell and the Los Angeles Times's Steve Lopez extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet, with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>